0: With a loud command and with the shout of the chief angel and a blast of God's trumpet, the Lord will return
1: from heaven. Then those who had faith in Christ before they died will be raised to life. Next, all of us who are still alive will be taken up into the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the sky.
0: First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17 contemporary English version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're so grateful we have the opportunity to be with you today. We have been working on a series we call Paul's Places for several weeks now. In fact, this is our tenth lesson in this series. By Paul, of course, we're referring to the Apostle Paul, who wrote almost half of the books in the New Testament. In this Paul's Places series, we are taking a look at Paul's letters to the churches that are identified in our Bibles by geographic names, mostly of cities such as Rome or Corinth. But the Book of Galatians is named for the province of Galatia, which was a region in what is now modern day Turkey. Anyone who has missed any of the previous lessons can find them on our website, crystalseabooks.com, or on their favorite podcast app. Today in the studio, we have R.D. Fierro the author of a number of great Christian books and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D. what was the major reason you wanted to do this Paul's Places series? Well,
1: I would like to add my thanks to yours for all the listeners who are joining us here today and to express our gratitude that we have the opportunity to share our conviction that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. The big reason that we undertook this Paul's Places series is really quite simple. We wanted to help our listeners be able to formulate a better answer to the question, are the New Testament documents historically reliable? The New Testament documents are the best documents that tell us about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. They're not the only documents, but they are certainly the best documents. Well, Jesus' death and his resurrection and ascension Those are real events that occurred within real history, but they were extraordinary events. And because they were extraordinary events, it's reasonable for people to wonder how we can be so sure that we have an accurate record that they actually occurred.
0: We are now 2,000 years removed from the time that Jesus walked on the earth, performed his miracles, died, and rose again. And we are almost 2,000 years removed from the time when people began hearing about these events and either accepting or rejecting the meaning of what occurred. Many of those early hearers celebrated the fact that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, had come and they became the first Christians. But we tend to forget in our day and age that those first Christians, even though they believed, had questions about exactly what had taken place. So, the Apostles began writing and sending documents to some of those first groups and churches to provide answers to questions and encourage their recipients. And later, many of those early documents were gathered into the compilation that we call our New Testament.
1: Right. And the Apostle Paul was one of the hardest working of the Apostles, and he certainly was one of the most prolific writers. You know, about half of our New Testament came from the Apostle Paul's hand.
0: And among the letters that Paul sent that have been preserved for us are the letters he sent to churches in various cities, or in one case, several churches in a region known as Galatia. We call those letters by the name of the group that received them, such as Romans, Corinthians, or Thessalonians. And today, we want to take a closer look at the letters Paul sent to the Thessalonians.
1: Yes. Among Paul's letters that have been preserved for us, nine of the letters that we have from him are identified by place names, by geographic names. There are six cities that are named, and as you said, there is one named for a region called Galatia. Now, two of those cities, Corinth and Thessalonica, have more than one letter preserved in our Bible. And so we call those letters 1st and 2nd Corinthians and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Well, in our Bibles, 1st and 2nd Corinthians are placed earlier in the order of the arrangement within the compilation of the books of the New Testament, but actually most scholars believe that 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are the earliest of Paul's letters that have been preserved.
0: The one possible exception to 1st and 2nd Thessalonians being the earliest of Paul's letters that we preserve is the letter to the Galatians. Scholars are pretty much evenly split on the date of the composition of Galatians. Some scholars believe Galatians was written as early as 49 A.D., right after Paul's first missionary journey. Other scholars place it several years later, after or during Paul's third missionary journey, possibly as late as 57 A.D. Since most scholars date 1st and 2nd Thessalonians around 51 or 52 A.D., It is quite possible they were the earliest of his letters or epistles that have been retained.
1: Yes, and for anyone who would like to have more information about the dating of the book of Galatians, they can go to our website, crystalseabooks.com, and they can just listen to the episode in our Paul's Places series that covers Galatia, or they can go to their favorite podcasting app. So, for today, we want to turn our attention to the letters that Paul sent to the Thessalonians. And the first thing that I want us to notice is that we know exactly where the city of Thessalonica is located because the city of Thessalonica is located in the same place today that it was in Paul's time. And today Thessalonica is also known as Thessaloniki, Saloniki, or Salonika.
0: Today Thessalonica is the second largest city in Greece with over one million inhabitants. In Paul's day, it's thought that Thessalonica had about 200,000 residents. Thessalonica is a seaport. It's at the head of the bay which is on the Gulf of Thessalonica. As a seaport, it is ideally suited for commerce. Thessalonica was founded by one of Alexander the Great's successors named Cassander in 315 BC. Cassander named the city for his wife, who was also a half sister of Alexander. Today, Thessalonica is the capital of the geographic region of Macedonia. And it pretty much served the same purpose in Paul's day when Macedonia was a Roman province. The Romans had taken charge of Macedonia and Thessalonica in 148 BC, so it's fair to say that in Paul's day it was a very important city. Right away, it makes sense that Paul would have gone there to preach and establish a church when he had the opportunity.
1: And even more than just being an important city, Thessalonica was located on what is called the Ignatian Way. The Ignatian Way was a very important transportation artery that the Romans had built in the 2nd century BC. And the Ignatian Way ran through a territory that is currently part of modern-day Albania, North Macedonia, Greece, and European Turkey. And the Ignatian Way was essentially a continuation of the Appian Way. The Ignatian Way was the main line of overland travel through Macedonia, which is northern Greece, and it went all the way from the west coast of Greece to western Turkey. Pretty much most people who know anything about the Roman Empire know that the Romans were prodigious builders of roads and ports, because roads and ports facilitated the commerce and trade, but also facilitated the travel of military equipment and supplies. So, the Romans were very good at building very sturdy roads, and in fact, some of their roads are still in use today. Well, both the cities of Thessalonica and Philippi were on the Ignatian Way. So, it makes perfect sense that when Paul had been mistreated in Philippi, he would have followed the Ignatian Way west to the next major city to the west, which was Thessalonica.
0: We hear about that in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 3, quote, Now when Paul and Silas had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he visited them, and for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, quote, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ, unquote.
1: So essentially, Paul skipped two smaller towns that were also on the Ignatian Way, Amphipolis and Apollonia, and he made his next ministry stop after Philippi in the city of Thessalonica, which, as we've been talking about, was a far more important city than either Amphipolis or Apollonia. Plus, it's quite likely that there may not have been a synagogue in Paul's day in Amphipolis or Apollonia. So, the lack of a synagogue would have limited Paul's normal approach to preaching the gospel. When Paul entered a new area, he liked to start his preaching in the local synagogue for a variety of reasons. Paul was a Jew, the synagogue was a place where his fellow believers, his fellow Jews would be gathering, and it was a great place for him to begin with the common level of understanding of the Jewish scriptures.
0: And here, that was Paul's custom from the section of Acts. When Paul came to a new area, he would start preaching the gospel at the local synagogue. Paul was a Jew, so he would start at the place where it was most likely he would find people who would know the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, and with whom he had a natural bond. If Paul didn't get a positive response from the Jews in the synagogue, he would find a place to preach to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Then, he would stay as long as it was profitable for him to be there. All too often, the resentment of the local Jewish community would create problems for Paul and his new converts. And that's what happened here. In verses 5 and 6 from chapter 17 of Acts, we hear, But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And they attacked the house of Jason and were seeking to bring Paul and Silas out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brothers before the city authorities and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and set the city in an uproar, unquote.
1: Right. And this little vignette that we get from Acts is actually very helpful in giving us insight into the content of the letters that Paul sent to the Thessalonians. So let's dig into that just a bit. It really doesn't seem like from Acts that Paul got to spend too much time in Thessalonica before he had to move on. Let's compare a time period in Thessalonica that probably was about two to three months and compare that with the 18 months that Paul spent in Corinth when he founded the church in Corinth or the nearly three years that he spent in Ephesus when he founded the church in Ephesus. So the church that Paul founded in Thessalonica had continued on despite the fact that Paul had spent a very limited amount of time there.
0: Possibly because there were some influential people within Thessalonica who had begun to believe when they first heard the gospel. Acts chapter 17, verse 4 tells us that, quote, a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a significant number of the leading women, unquote, had become believers.
1: Uh, quite possibly. And I think that reference to, quote, leading women, unquote, is particularly important. You know, leading in this context very likely means that those women were influential, important, and frankly, probably rich. You know, that's not a bad start. I mean, that's a pretty good start for a church to have a group of influential and wealthy women who have discovered and been led to the truth. Because those women would not have been easily pushed aside or dissuaded from what they had come to believe. And oddly enough, the fact that the Thessalonian church included a large number of wealthy and influential women may give us an interesting clue into one of the primary subjects that Paul addressed in his letters to the Thessalonians.
0: An interesting clue, huh? I can't wait to see where you're going with this.
1: Yes, it's sanctified imagination time. A couple of times in this Paul's Places series, we've mentioned that we can learn more and understand better the content of Paul's letters, his epistles, if we not only study the individual letters themselves, but if we also look across the letters to see where they compare and contrast. Well, we've noticed in the letters that we've covered so far that Paul has covered a wide variety of subjects in those letters.
0: He covered the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles both before and after Jesus' coming in the letter to the Romans. Rome had a lot of both Jews and Gentiles in its congregation. He covered how to deal with sexual temptation in his letters to the Corinthians. The city of Corinth contained a temple to the Roman goddess Venus that employed as many as a thousand prostitutes. Sexual temptation was a real problem there. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul was very emphatic that Jesus was superior to all the other supposed gods, goddesses, and celestial powers. Colossae was located in a region that had worshipped the goddess, Cybele, and some thought had become an astral power.
1: Right. Up to this point, we have seen that Paul covered a wide variety of subjects in his letters, along with a continuing emphasis on the fact of Jesus' resurrection from the dead and how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies contained in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, of course, were the Jewish scriptures. Evidently, part of Paul's evangelistic strategy was to start out by proclaiming that the Messiah had come, and that this meant that the major event necessary for redemptive history to proceed to its final conclusion had been
0: completed. The New Geneva Study Bible's introductory section on First Thessalonians says this, quote, The Thessalonian Letters, Paul's preaching at Athens, recorded in Acts 17, confirms that Paul's strategy among non-Christian audiences at this time was to stress the coming judgment that God has placed in the hands of the risen Christ,
1: And of course, that makes sense. With Jewish audiences, Paul had a point of connection that he did not have with the Gentile audiences. With Jewish audiences, Paul could refer to their scriptures, which, for most of his listeners, were in the form of the Greek version of the Old Testament, which was called the Septuagint. But with the Gentile audiences, referring to the Septuagint would have been meaningless. Even if they had a copy, which most did not, they would have had very little or no familiarity with its content. But one place Paul could always start his evangelistic message was with the fact that all human beings have an innate sense of right and wrong, and that we all know that we have done things wrong. And so we all have this innate sense that someday we are going to face judgment for the things that we have done wrong.
0: But naturally, at the same time that Paul confirmed his audience's fears about the coming judgment... He gave them the good news that anyone who placed their trust in Jesus, the Messiah who had come, would have no reason to fear the judgment. The consequences of judgment for those who believed in Christ had already been placed on Christ. Believers, therefore, need have no fear of judgment. Jesus has been judged in our place. We can look forward to eternal life because He paid the penalty for our sin.
1: Amen. And. Paul covers this good news in one way or another in every single one of his letters. But among all the other subjects that we have seen that Paul has covered in his letters, there is one very obvious subject that we have not mentioned. Because surprisingly enough, this subject is only covered in much depth in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and in 1st Corinthians.
0: And that subject is?
1: And that subject is the whole question of the order and the timing of when judgment and our own resurrection will occur. Now now think about it. This man arrives in your town, and he started preaching, and he was interesting, and you started listening to it. And this man just told you about a prophet in Judea, far away probably from where you lived, and that this prophet in Judea preached about the kingdom of heaven. Not only that, this prophet in Judea claimed that he was God in the flesh. Well, that claim, of course, would be extraordinary made by any man. But then this person who is preaching to you at that moment tells you that that prophet in Judea not only claimed that he was God in the flesh, but then he performed miracles that validated his claim. And then you find out that that prophet in Judea was killed by the Romans.
0: And everybody in Paul's day knew that the Romans were very good at executing people they thought were criminals.
1: And the people of that day knew how the Romans executed criminals. But then you hear the person, the man who's preaching to you, tell you that the prophet in Judea who said that he was the son of God after he died did not stay dead. That that prophet in Judea rose from the dead under his own power. And he proceeded to appear to hundreds of people over a period of 40 days. And finally, that prophet in Judea ascended back into heaven And a great many people saw that ascension. Well, the next thing that that man who's preaching to you tells you is that someday that prophet from Judea is coming back to earth to judge everyone who has ever lived. Well, that message is going to be pretty startling and amazing when you hear it. So naturally, you're going to have some questions. So what is the first question most people would ask when they hear that that prophet from Judea is coming back?
0: When? I would want to know when the prophet is coming back. And I would want to know how I'll be able to recognize that we're getting close to that time.
1: Exactly. Well, the only place in his many letters that Paul spends much time on the question of the how and when of Jesus' return is in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and 1st Corinthians. Well, one reason that this question seems to have been particularly important to the Thessalonians is that evidently between the time that Paul spent with them, which was around late 50 A.D. or early 51 A.D., and then when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, which was about six months to a year later, well, evidently a number of the Thessalonian believers had died. And evidently the question of what would happen to believers who had died before Christ returned that had become an important question in the Thessalonian church. So, evidently, after Paul left the Thessalonians, someone had started circulating the idea that believers who were still alive when Christ returns would get better treatment, would get a better deal, than those who had died. Now, you remember what we said about the church in Thessalonica having started with the number of the, quote, leading women, unquote.
0: Oh, I see where you're going with this line of thinking you're thinking that it would be quite common for wealthy, influential women to be, shall we say, more mature. Or said plainly, a lot of years often pass before people acquire substantial amounts of money, influence, or wisdom. Not always, but it's certainly not uncommon.
1: And what do older women have?
0: Older husbands. And we know it's very common for men not to live as long as women, so it's not a stretch to think that some of the concern about the treatment of dead believers may have risen among some of the older women who had helped found the church. That actually makes good sense those women had been early converts, and even though Paul had only been gone from Thessalonica for a year or two before he wrote First Thessalonians, it's easily possible some of those early converts had already experienced the loss of the most important person in their life. Naturally, they would want to be sure that if Jesus came back before they died, they would be reunited with their lost loved one. Grief has a way of bringing certain questions into sharp relief. Wow. You don't think about that when you read those epistles. To us, those are letters long dated and established. But when Paul was writing to the Thessalonian church, he may very well have been writing to a church where some of his first converts had already recently become widows.
1: You know, the question of the timing of Jesus' return gets sensationalized in our day and time. There are countless books, movies, TV dramas, shows, whatever, that have contemplated the question of Jesus' return in one form or another. But in our day and time, we know with absolute certainty that 2,000 years will have elapsed between Jesus' first and second coming.
0: But those first century believers had no way of knowing that. For all they knew, it might have just been a matter of a few decades that would elapse. So to a widow in Thessalonica who had just lost her life partner the question of the treatment of a dead believer would have had a great sense of immediacy.
1: Yep. And remember that those first century believers not only didn't have the benefit of our 2,000 years of hindsight, but they also didn't have any easily accessible resources so they could get answers to their questions. So when Paul sent them a letter that said, in effect, hey, don't worry, if your husband or your wife has just died, they will also be raised to new life when Jesus comes, Well, for those people who got that message from the Apostle Paul, that would have been like eating cold watermelon on a hot day.
0: Yes, I recognize that line from your book, The Prodigal's Advocate.
1: And for anyone who wants to deepen their faith, or help someone else find their faith, The Prodigal's Advocate is a great resource. At any rate, wanting to know how and when Christ will return is still a subject in our day and age and so it would have been a natural question for Paul's very first converts in the latter half of the first century AD. And in a way, it's remarkable that after Paul wrote his letters to the Thessalonians that Paul spent in the rest of his letters only a fairly modest amount of time addressing the question, and that was chiefly in the letter that we call 1 Corinthians.
0: Well, as we've noted, First and Second Thessalonians are quite possibly Paul's earliest epistles that have been preserved. It may be that as Paul moved through his ministry career, he began covering Christ's return so thoroughly in person, he no longer had to spend much time on it in his written correspondence.
1: And that is actually a very important observation. One of the topics that Paul does cover in 1 Thessalonians is the divinity of Christ. Paul strongly affirms Christ's divinity in 1 Thessalonians. So this tells us that Christ was both fully divine as well as fully human. That doctrine was not a much later development in the Christian faith, as is sometimes alleged. Right from the beginning, from the earliest days of the church, the earliest Christians knew that Jesus was God in the flesh. And the Trinitarian nature of the Godhead is also addressed in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14.
0: Those verses say, quote, But we ought always to thank God for you, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through the belief in the truth. He called you that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, And this
1: demonstrates that rather than such doctrines as the dual nature of Christ and the Trinitarian nature of God being later developments in the Christian faith, Those fundamental doctrines were well understood from the very earliest days of Christianity. Critics will sometimes allege that the belief that Christ was truly God was a much later addition to the Christian faith. The critics will say something like, Well, Christ was a good man and a great teacher, but he never claimed to be God. But as C.S. Lewis pointed out in his well-known discussion that's often termed Lord, Liar, or Lunatic, That kind of assertion about Jesus is just plain silly. Anyone who reads the Gospels carefully knows that Jesus quite clearly claimed to be God, and Jesus claimed to possess prerogatives that only God possesses, such as the authority to forgive sins. So, as Lewis noted in his famous discussion, any man who believes he is God, they might be a liar who's just trying to deceive others for one reason or another, Or that man might be a lunatic, the kind who's just crazy. But neither a liar or a lunatic should ever be considered a good man or a great teacher. But if Jesus is who he claimed to be, God incarnate, then the only appropriate response is to fall on our knees in abject awe and worship.
0: Well, that's a good place to end for today. Again, this Paul's Places series is all about the letters contained in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul to convey important truths to those who had begun to place their trust in Jesus. Let's close with prayer as we always do. Today, let's listen to a prayer for our young children. A Prayer for Young Children Father of immeasurable compassion and love, Thank you for the abundant goodness that you have poured into our lives. We are so grateful that we can turn to you, knowing that you will receive us with mercy and patience. Lord, we pray that you will help us to be godly parents to our children. As they begin to experience your creation and the world about them, help us to be ever vigilant in guarding them from harm, protecting them from danger, even as you already do for us. Please let them be healthy and strong and help us to know how to help them when they get sick or hurt. Help us to give them opportunities to learn and grow but only in ways that are appropriate. Watch over them with your loving eyes and listen to their cries when they call. Help us to love them fully and completely and especially to lead them to you and your truth. We know that all children are a blessing from you but we also know that there will be difficult days when we will need a special grace and instruction from you. Please let our children grow constantly in their love for you and in the appreciation of your greatness. We trust in your word that if they are trained up early in your ways that they will not depart from you. We remember that you also have a son and that you love us so much that you sent him to die for us. In Christ's name we pray and give thanks. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where
1: We're not perfect, but our boss is.